Well, would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah? If you're visiting with us and maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed the text for you on page 9 of your worship guide. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those pew Bibles home with you. We'd love just to have God's Word in your home, so please take one of those. Zechariah chapter 1, starting, I'm just going to read, I've printed two passages for us here, but I'm just going to read to start us out, verse 1, 18 through 21. This is God's Word. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold... Four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them. To cast down the horns of the nation who lifted up their horns against the head of Judah to scatter it. You may be seated. Would you pray with me and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, it is with this confident hope that by your word, your voice is heard, and by your voice, your power is unleashed. And so speak to us today, and by your word preached, transform us. Uncover the hidden places of our lives that need to be exposed and redeemed. Strengthen us where we feel weak, encourage us where we're discouraged, confront us where we're blind. By your spirit, come and speak. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us, we are working our way through the book of Zechariah. And one of the the sort of themes is that God is remaking his people. And the church is to be a radical community who live counterculturally at great expense. A people who follow the path of Jesus to a life that's shaped by the cross. And it looks like this. I suffer so that you can flourish. That's the heart of what Jesus has done. That's the heart of the gospel. He suffered So that we can flourish. So to take up our cross and follow him means that the people of God are to live in such a countercultural way that we live for the prospering of others at our own expense. Now during the first century Roman world, Christians were considered socially weird at worst. They were persecuted. Nero was killing them, hanging them on spikes, dipping them in wax, lighting them on fire so that he could see in his garden at night. The church had zero social standing, no wealth, no political power. And so the question is often put, why in that context would anyone want to become a Christian, and yet it's in that context that the church saw explosive growth. Why? 
Because the Roman Empire saw something in the church that was radically different. A community of people who had been so deeply changed by Jesus that when the Romans were throwing their their children into the streets because they had some type of defect. They were weak or had some birth defect. They would just discard them in the streets so that they would then die from exposure. The Christians were the ones rounding up the orphans and taking them in. Why would anyone become in that context a Christian? Because they saw a power that they did not have access to. They didn't have access to this power with wealth or weapons or privilege. They saw a power that was shaping a people who had nothing to give up everything for the flourishing of others. Now put that on your to-do list. Because I think that could be overwhelming to many of us. To hear that sort of call to radical commitment to live by the power of God in such a degree that we are giving up because I mean if you're if your week is anything like mine I can just barely manage to get by let alone try to navigate a counter-cultural cross-embasing fiercely generous kind of love that turns an entire empire upside down but let me suggest that the reason that we get so easily overwhelmed by the normal stresses of life and don't get to that kind of fiercely loving counter-cultural cross-embracing kind of lifestyle. It's because we don't really understand or even believe the kind of power that is at work in those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are discouraged because we think that the Christian life is just a matter of try harder and do more. And we get overwhelmed because we're like, I got no more try. And there's no way I could add, possibly add one more thing to my overwhelming list. But if people who are sort of sold out to that lifestyle of cross-embracing fiercely generous, empire-turning love are not doing so because they have a crafty plan that they've put together or five steps to overcoming fill-in-the-blank. There's no giving up or adding to only a people radically changed by the power of God because we see ourselves battling an enemy that is so much greater than any of our resources can tackle that we fall at the feet of Jesus and live by his power. This is the theme of Zechariah. Not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord who has armies and fights for us, who is our shield and our defender, the glory and the lifter of our weak head. Zechariah, the prophet, has come on the scene to set historical context while Israel is in a massive rebuilding project. And they've seen some success. The temple is being rebuilt. It's 
It's midway through its completion when Zechariah shows up to the scene. And here's part of the point that God is making to Zechariah. Those times of success and excess can be spiritually dangerous times for them. And the temple was the center of their identity. And it was being rebuilt. Think, think, think of the White House or the Capitol being destroyed. There's symbols of prominence being destroyed. Some invading army comes in and wipes it out. And then that invading army is suddenly overturned and, and the Capitol is being rebuilt. The White House is being rebuilt and our, our sense of national pride and, and prominence is on the rise again. This is where Israel was and, and God is here confronting them or reminding them through Zechariah's prophecies, his visions. That this is not something to be celebrated. For there are greater threats in their midst. In fact, in the previous verse and we read today in verse 17, God had made this promise to his people. Cry out again, the Lord of hosts says, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. In the light of that type of success, it's easy to fall back into self-reliance. And so the Lord, through these visions, is pulling the curtain back, unveiling what's going on in the world so that they would again be reminded that the enemies that they face are greater than the power that they have in their own hands. And so God adjusts their vision with two more Visions. I said last week that there are eight visions here, night visions, dreams that Zechariah seems to have most likely in one long night. And we're going, to, we're going to kind of build our way from the outside in. We're looking at visions two and seven today. And what God is doing is he's saying, look, there's a conquering that needs to be take place in your midst. A conquering of evil before my people can ever flourish external circumstances be what they may what needs to be resolved is evil needs to be conquered in your midst and removed this is what God is up to he's he's up to the destroying the oppression of evil by making for himself and making for himself a holy people and what we're going to see, I think, from these visions is that, that what God is after is removing sin that oppresses his people from their midst. So that by his power, he, they can walk in holiness. So this first vision, starting here in chapter 1, verse 18, this, this first vision, which is really the second, the first of our visions today, which is the second of the vision, starts with Zechariah seeing four horns. I lifted up my eyes and saw Four horns. And I love this. Uh, almost every single one of these visions, Zechariah's like, what's going on? I don't understand. Tell me about this. What are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah. Why horns? Why is he seeing horns? Well, horns are often in the Bible signs of military power, strength, and therefore oppression. Imagine a, a large bull with horns or a large rhino with horns. The horn is a symbol of strength for those animals with which they destroy and oppress and dominate those weaker than them. 
And so when Zechariah asks the angels what these represent, he says, these are the horns that scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. These are the oppressive nations that are greater than the weakness of God's people. Now, these horns could symbolize anything from Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, the three empires that had, had oppressed Israel under God's judgment, its discipline, on his people, they had oppressed them, and then the fourth horn could be Egypt or Greece or some later empire like Rome. But more likely what's going on here is that four serves in the Bible as being symbolic for completeness or totality. We even use it this way when we talk about the four corners of the earth. What we mean is the totality of the earth. And so what God's sort of saying here is that these These four horns are symbolic of the worldly powers of the earth. The worldly power structures. In Israel's day, it was Persia. Later, it would be Greece. And then Rome. These are the ones who hold power and don't submit to the reign and rule of God in this world. Now, when you read the Old Testament, we need to make some adjustments to our day. Some shifts. To our day. And one of those shifts is to see what the nations often represented for Israel. They were the embodiment of everything that was living in opposition to the reign and rule of God. They were just enlarged bodies of evil rebellion. Or maybe put this way, they were sin writ large. And so here's what God is saying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to topple that which oppresses my people. Before we ever sin, before we ever act in a sinful way, It is because sin is a power, an oppressor within us. It is a ruling power. Before you ever commit a sin, it is because sin is ruling in those who are outside of Christ. It's still a power that is present in those who are in Christ, but outside of Christ, it is the power that has oppressed all of humanity. And in Zechariah's vision, verse 20, the horns are so powerful that they're against their oppression that no one raised a hand. They're completely unable to tackle it. They're so weak that the oppression that was in front of them was greater than the power that was within them. Now, hear what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He uses the language shifting of slavery. That all who sin do so because they're slaves to sin. Meaning for those who are outside of Christ are oppressed by the power, the corrupting power of sin. So that we're slaves to it. Which means we can only obey its mastery over us. We are sold under sin. And we can't find when he says, look, here's the problem. When I want to do the right things, I can't. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. Do you hear that? I can't, I can't overcome this oppressive power of sin. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin as a ruling power in my life that dwells in me. Perhaps you felt this in your life. I can't change myself. I can no more change myself than Israel could overcome little, weak, insignificant Israel could overcome the worldwide dominion of Persia. And if you're, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is not just a, an equal power that is at work in you. This has you under its oppression. Send us. But then notice what happens next in this vision. But God. These are the words that are always at the heart of the gospel. What you cannot do for yourself, God has done for you in Christ. The horns don't win because four craftsmen show up in verse 20 and then in verse 21 they terrify the horns that no one previously could even raise a hand against their the horns are now terrified by craftsmen now craftsmen sounds like just exactly what they are tradesmen not the guy who has vast amounts of resources, not the guys who went to Harvard and have an elite degree. These are the guys who went to the tech school in Hohenwald. They're the ones who did an apprenticeship with an electrician. They are, they are, not, they are not the strong and the decisive and the insightful it is a dis completely disproportionate overthrowing. It's weakness. They're not military officers. They're not warriors with swords. They aren't even kings with vast armies. They aren't the politicians in the place of power and influence. The ones who bring deliverance from the mighty empire of the world are the electricians, the woodworker, the farmer, the welder, and the plumber. The guy who packs his lunch and does his trade. This is going to be a major theme in Zechariah, that God's power is on display through weakness. So a little branch of a tree all of a sudden overthrows the world's empires. Not by power, nor by strength, but by my spirit. It's interesting. It's interesting that Jesus came from a similar family. The word that we often translate as carpenter for Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, the home that he grew up in is more generally a craftsman, a person who works a trade. Could have been a carpenter, could have been who knows what, someone who worked a trade. And Jesus was from such a small town that when he was introduced on the scene, they asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's such an insignificant place. I mean, imagine the United States being overrun by ISIS or the Taliban. Out of nowhere, they become a major military power and, and topple the United States. And then someone coming along and saying, here's your hope. A plumber in Pulaski. 
But you see that Paul says just such a a profound thing again in Romans 6. Because we look for strength and deliverance from all the wrong places. Educational system, professionals. Perhaps out of a desperate attachment to the next fad that has all the answers. Is simply a testimony to the fact that all of the world's systems have no power over the flesh. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul says to the Colossians, they all have the appearance of worldly wisdom, but they have no power over the sin that's in you. And so Paul says a profound thing in Romans chapter 6. If you are in Christ, the death of Jesus has liberated you from the oppressive dominion of sin. That's the picture of weakness, defeating the strongholds. I mean, if you've seen someone die or been with someone on their deathbed, it is perhaps the ultimate form of weakness. You can't stop death. Very frail. Very frail. We can live with the illusion that we're strong and capable and control our own destiny until we face death and nobody can stop it. And yet, God, through the death of Jesus, defeats the stronghold of sin. The craftsman has liberated from the oppression so that, so that the nations are terrified at his coming. Romans 6.6 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin... Now he's personifying it. This is what it is. It's like, it's like this evil oppressor in you might be brought to nothing. By the death of Jesus. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. It's still in you. You struggle with it every day. But the struggle is a sign that you've been set free. You've been set free to struggle. Jesus has come. The craftsman has come. He's overthrown its oppression. For the one who died who's been set free from sin. Now this is an amazing Romans six fourteen. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You're under the reign of Jesus. Sin can no longer have dominion over you. God, through the death of Jesus, has overthrown sin as the ruling power in your life. And as a result, you can't fall back under its dominion. It's been overthrown. You might have times when it advances in your life. You'll fall into sin on a daily basis. I do, you will, we all do, we all will. But there will even be extended times and seasons where God allows sin to advance in your life. But if you are in Christ, Jesus is the ruling power. Sin is not the ruling power. And the Lord Jesus says, sin will have no dominion over you anymore. Because the craftsman has overthrown the horns in his death. But that's not the end. That's good news. It's tremendous news. There's freedom in the Christian life. But that's not the end. There's more to the story. Now, Flip over to chapter 5. Verse 5. This vision is weirder. <clears throat> In fact, it may be the weirdest of all his visions. 
Zechariah sees a basket going out. It's most likely a wicker basket about the size of a bushel. And if you aren't a farmer, think about the size of a laundry basket, which some of you, if you have young children, are all too familiar with. Is there, is there, there are two things that just are just constants. Um, there's an ancient myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus had to push a rock up a hill. When it almost got to the top, it rolled back down. So these tasks that you um, have to do that you ever seem to make advances on. Those are Sisyphean tasks. If the Greeks were rewriting Sisyphus today, he'd have to clean out a minivan or do kids' laundry. Constant. And so he's got this wicker basket. It's about the size of a laundry basket. There's a woman inside and a lead cover over it. And then two women show up with wings like a stork and they carry this basket off to Shinar to the north, which is where Babylon was. That's just weird. You can understand why Zechariah would ask again, what is it? And because God's goal is never to confuse his people but to enlighten them, he provides an interpreting angel. And in verse 7, he tells us that the woman is symbolic of the iniquity of Israel and she is given the name wickedness. And while Israel has set, been set free, you see in the first vision from Babylon's bondage, there was still a lot of Babylon in Israel. And it needed to be removed as well. They may have been set free from the oppressive dominion, but there was still remnants of it in them. And there are really two parts to this vision. The, the basket with the lead cover and then the beings removing wickedness from God's people. And so in, in, in verse 7, this lead cover, which was, would have been heavy, probably more like 75 pounds of lead on top of this wicker basket, and, and, and it's lifted off, and she pokes her head out, and then he's like, okay, that's enough, and puts it back. And I, and I think what's being envisioned here is that God is telling them, look, I am suppressing your wickedness. You're not nearly as bad as you could be. You are, you have been in Really, you've been an unfaithful people. The list of your sins is amazingly great. But I have good news for you. You're not as bad as you could be. And you're not as bad as you could be because I've been restraining your wickedness. You could be a lot worse. It's so true of all of us. It should frighten us what the power of sin, when it is unleashed, could do in any of our lives. It's all in us. The worst crime that you can imagine, the worst sin that you've ever envisioned, you're capable, we are capable, I am capable of committing. Unless the Lord restrains. This explains why we can see so much good in such a broken and fallen world with such a sin-oppressed people because the Lord in His common grace does not allow sin to run rampant. He holds it back. Which is good news. I mean, it's just good news. Lord, please don't let me be who I could be. But what I really need for you to do is to remove that from my life. And that's the second part of the vision. God is removing the sin of his people. He, he sends it off with with. With these winged beings, and the reason they're wings, he sends them off into the wind, these winged beings. 
back to Babylon where they belong. There's no place for the wickedness, wickedness in God's people. He's going to remove this because he's making a holy people. But it's a work of his grace. They don't put wickedness in the basket and then fly it off themselves. These, this, these amazing beings show up with wings like a spork and they stork and they just a spork. Wings like a spork. Wings like a stork, which is a much better vision. And they lift the basket between earth and heaven and they fly off. Where are you taking it? Back to Babylon, where it belongs. God's doing this. The Christian life isn't. God sets you free, so go try really, really hard. It's not, look what God did for you at the cross. Now the rest is up to you. God's power doesn't just start the Christian life. It's the constant for those who are in Christ. God is the one who makes his people holy by his power. Growing in holiness is first a work of God's gracious power. Before it is ever something you do, and we do participate in it, there is work for us to do. But before we ever work, it is first a work of God's gracious power. We're just kind of getting along with what he's already doing. Get on board. Look at what I'm doing. I'm removing sin in your life. Paul says this. He, He confronts the Galatians. They'd fallen into this trap and just thinking that it's all up to them. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected or completed by the flesh, your own efforts? It's a rhetorical question. He's just pressing him. God started this. God's doing this. How did he start and do this? By hearing with faith. This is weak means again. I mean, it, we overcomplicate the Christian life, the pursuit of holiness. We just make it so much more difficult than it needs to be. God performs his power through weakness. You foolish Galatians, this is not by your own power. This is by the power of God and his spirit, not by power or by might, but by my spirit. And then he says, how did you get the spirit in the first place? You just simply heard and believed. And how do we tap into the power of the craftsman? In his weakness, his strength is perfected. Just the normal means. I mean, it's just really, this is enough For God's power to be unleashed in our lives and transform us, making us a holy people. So did you get this from our New Testament reading? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In Jesus Christ is everything I need to live the radically sold out, empowered, cross-shaped generous life where I suffer so that others can flourish. But if I'm going to get there, that is in Christ. I have access to it. God is removing sin in my life. All things God's given me in Jesus Christ. How do I access that? 
2 Peter 1, 3. He's granted me all things that pertain to life and godliness by his divine power through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and great promises, the Bible, so that through them you may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is enough. This is enough when we gather together, when we come to the table, when we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. God is just, what are we doing? I don't feel like I'm doing enough. You are doing what you're tapping into the sanctifying power of God through which he is making his people holy. And so you think there's got to be more. Nope. It's just that simple and ordinary. Because this is how the craftsman is taking out his tools and putting wickedness in a basket and flying it away. Not by power or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. One of the most fearful things in sports is what's called a change of momentum. You've heard him talk about it in football games. Oh, there's been a momentum change. And the reason it's, it's so fearful is that when, when a team realizes that it's winning, it plays all out. Christ has died. Christ has been raised. Christ has given his spirit. And so let's fight for a cross-shaped life so that the world would say, there is a power there that we don't have access to in all of our wealth and status and privilege. There's something in them that we cannot produce our own. And then God would be glorified as the God who makes a holy people. Let's pray. Lord, this is our only hope that we are found in Christ who is the great defeater of sin and will overcome it in our lives. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, not to despair or grow weary from doing good, but instead keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in his name. Amen.